Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their faces, their, their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. First off, let me pray that prayer. We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Quote from a more recent prophet. They say I got to learn, but nobody's here to teach me. If they can't understand it, how can they reach me? I guess they can't. I guess they won't. I guess they front. That's why I know my life is out of luck, fool. That's Coolio. Gangster's Paradise, 1995. Just one more thing I can cross off my sermon quotes bucket list. Teaching is a critical work of the church. But it ain't easy. There's a saying that uh, those who cannot do teach, right? Uh, I think the idea being it's easier to explain things than actually do them. Maybe that explains why so many of the best like sports coaches were just mediocre players that found new life as a coach, right? Um, but just because teaching something is maybe in a sense easier than doing it, uh, that doesn't mean that teaching is easy. Some of you are teachers. You can vouch for that. My father taught elementary school for six months before giving up the profession entirely. But that was the Philly school district, so anyway. (laughs) To be a good teacher is to impart understanding on someone else. And that requires work. It doesn't happen automatically. Uh, People need help. You've got to build a bridge between the information that you have and where your student is standing And that's what Ezra models for us today. Understanding is an important theme in Scripture, and particularly in this passage. And you can see that in how, I mean, even in how the New Testament talks so frequently about the mind. Uh, Jesus commands us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The Apostle Paul urges us in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
And when Paul gives a discourse on prayer in 1 Corinthians 14, he emphasizes that praying in unknown tongues is unfruitful for the mind. And so he argues and urges the Corinthians instead to pray and to sing praises, not only with our spirits, but also with our minds. Now, of course, we don't believe that salvation is purely an intellectual thing, and nor do we think that salvation depends on the depth of your understanding of the gospel. Uh, Not many of us are scholars, but God saves simple people. Um, But I do think understanding is important. You should understand some things. That you are a sinner. That Jesus died to save you. That you should love him. That he is your Lord and your king. These are not things that require a PhD to understand. But like anything else, it needs to be taught. And that's the essence of evangelism, isn't it? Getting people to understand the gospel with their minds. How they respond in their heart is not up to us. That's up to the Holy Spirit. We're just messengers. But if you want to see revival happen in a city like Allentown, the gospel must be explained. The words, the word must be taught. So what does that look like, particularly in the context of this passage? Last week we talked about how to hear God's word, how we should listen. And we talked about how the people in this scene, how they had gathered together, right? They, They demanded the word, they paid attention to the word, they listened to the word with anticipation, And then they also reacted to the word. But in the midst of all that, there is teaching going on. And I kind of skipped over that part. Uh, While while the people are hearing and responding to the word, there are teachers teaching. And I want to say up front that this, this is not a message that's just for pastors. Though there are certainly some heavy lessons in here for me. Um, But we are all called to share the gospel, right? To evangelize. And and evangelism inherently means teaching. Jesus, in the Great Commission, commands his disciples, his church, in part, to go and teach the nations to obey his commands. And so there are principles here for all of us. All of you are called on to teach and disciple and explain the gospel, maybe to a co-worker, maybe to your children, maybe to your friends, maybe to your parents, your neighbors. All of us have this responsibility. And so I want to look at this passage again, more from the perspective of Ezra, and the other teachers, and how does he take the text of God's word and deliver it to God's people? Let's look again here at the first handful of verses. He says, All the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, I want to take a moment and point out something by way of background here, because I mentioned briefly last week that any pastor would love to have an audience this eager. I would love if every Sunday y'all came in here whooping and hollering for the word, like that would be kind of fun. Um... But this must be especially beautiful for Ezra. I reminded us, you know, that last week, that Ezra was a legitimate Bible scholar, if you'll recall. He was a very learned man. Think of him as the equivalent of a PhD from Westminster, right? And his passion had been to travel to Jerusalem and preach the word of God. That's what got him fired up. His passion was to teach, and he wanted to do it in God's own city. 
But if you'll recall, Ezra had a pretty rough go of it, didn't he? He shows up in town ready to launch into his first sermon series, and immediately he hits a brick wall. There's this scandal going on. Many of the people, including the spiritual leadership, had married foreign women. And so Ezra spent his first days in Jerusalem weeping in sackcloth in ashes, one of the countless things seminary didn't prepare him for. And he spent the remainder of that book basically cleaning up the mess, and it was kind of depressing, if you recall. Ezra had come to Jerusalem to preach the word, and he barely had the chance. He spent the entire time handling an enormous case of church discipline. Lesser men would have quit and gone back and taken a job in a Persian deli, perhaps. (laughs) And yet here in Nehemiah 8, we see Ezra's story is redeemed. He doesn't just have an opportunity to proclaim the word. The people are clamoring for it. And they won't leave until they hear it. This had to be music to his ears. This is what he lived for. This is what he had trained for. This is why he came to Jerusalem in the first place. And now... They want to hear it. And so God is redeeming the seemingly wasted years. And I I wish I had noticed this story a few years ago. Um, When I finished seminary, it took me nine years before I received a call to come here. And that was, I'll be honest, a depressing season sometimes. Not every minute of it, but I was often discouraged in those years. And sometimes I felt like I had wasted my time and money at Westminster. Uh, It turns out seven years of unpaid internships don't do anything to improve your family finances either. And I wondered at times if I had missed something, like maybe my calling was to another field. Um, But God didn't waste those years in the deli. He was training me just as he was training Ezra. And that's just as true even if you're not in ministry. The, The lean years when you feel like God is not using you, first off, he is using you. He always is. Uh, But he also uses those years to shape you. And there may come a day when you'll be even more useful on account of them. Uh, I, I think that Ezra was probably more ready for this moment because of all the nonsense and all the suffering and all the work and all the waiting. So this is good stuff here. And Ezra starts by simply reading the word. He lets God's word sort of speak for itself. And that's important because the job of the preacher is not to preach himself or his ideas, but the word. And the people will not learn the word without hearing the word. And so that's how Ezra starts. And he reads for six hours, and the people listen. And we're given a few other details about how this whole thing is set up in the next few verses. It says, Ezra the scribe, verse 4, stood on a wooden platform that they had built, made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So we're told about this wooden platform. It's a stage that was built for the purpose. Meaning this event was either planned, or at least they wanted to be ready for such an occasion. And this is... I don't know, I could be wrong. This might be the only pulpit that I can think of recorded in Scripture that I know of. Um, The primary purpose seems to be to elevate the speaker so that he can be seen and heard, obviously. It's an unusual pulpit in that there's room for 14 guys up there. (laughs) 
which means it must have been huge. My, my friend Angel is the pastor down at Calvary Press in Willow Grove. And for many years, the, the pastors have preached a small, like, sort of lectern thing up in, the, up in the front, a little closer to the people. But behind that, there's this monstrous pulpit, uh, clearly a product of the 60s. It, it is ugly, mod, it's weird. And um, it looks a bit like a boat. And maybe you're supposed to picture Jesus up there, like being on the Sea of Galilee, I don't know. Uh, Angel tells me he just actually started using the boat pulpit, you know, just to like throw his people off or something. I don't know, but he, he likes it. But it's a big pulpit, and it still wouldn't fit 14 guys. But this pulpit or stage or platform is the largest piece of furniture in the square. Think of it like the band shell in West Park. Like, it's obviously the focal point in the square. Everyone's eyes would be glued to Ezra and to the word of God. So notice the centrality of the word, too. And I pointed this out when I covered this passage last year. Thirteen guys are named in addition to Ezra. Uh, and we don't know what they're exactly doing up there. Maybe they're there to help read. I'm not sure. The, call them the Bible reading bullpen in case uh, Ezra gets tired. But the word itself is in the middle, as it should be. I, I, I've said it before, but this is actually my biggest beef with the arrangement of the furniture here, is that the pulpit's on the side like this. The table is centered, and I think that's appropriate. But the preached word should also be centered, I think. Uh, the preached word is a means of grace as much as the supper is, according to our larger catechism. The preached word is how God has chosen to grow his kingdom on earth. This is why Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And why he says elsewhere, how are they to hear without someone preaching the word, especially when preached, is what fuels revival. Preaching is inherently evangelistic. And so the preached word should be the focal point. It should be central. Now, I've heard some argue that, that Sunday morning worship is not really about evangelism. And in fact, you'll find language similar to that effect in the LVPC Constitution, which I know you've all read you know, front to back. Um, but Article 2 of that document concerning this church's purpose has this line in it uh, that the gathering of believers is not primarily for the purpose of evangelism but for the equipping of the saints. Now, that's true in a sense. Uh, when I preach up here, I am certainly preaching to many who are already believers, and my job when I'm preaching up here is certainly to equip the saints. That's part of what we're doing here. But if we are not evangelizing on Sunday mornings, pray tell, brothers and sisters, what are we even doing here? What do we think our mission is? And part of the problem is a problem of language, because frankly, I would argue that the way that believers get equipped is by hearing the gospel again and again and again. You need to know that it's still good news this week. You are here to be evangelized and to have the good news proclaimed to you yet again that your sins are big, but Jesus is bigger, and that he has made full atonement for your sin on the cross. And that there is hope and grace for wretched sinners like you and like me. Isn't that good news? I think so. And I think that's what will equip you to face the weak. So the word should be elevated, it should be central. Verse 5 makes an interesting side comment that the book was opened in the sight of all the people. 
Now, in a way, that just sounds obvious, of course. He's elevated. Everybody can see him, right? But I think what that speaks to is transparency, which is important. I I think it's important that Ezra and the book are seen and are visible. Or even that they have all these other guys up there kind of looking over his shoulder, right? Because, again, this is not some magic secret book of spells. There should be transparency about where the words are coming from. If you've read and know anything about the Mormons, uh, you know, Joseph Smith, when he founded that sect, he claimed that he received the Book of Mormon on golden plates that were buried at the foot of some tree that some angel told him about. And he goes and gets them, and he dictated these plates to his secretary, who was not allowed to see them. He put them in his hat, he said, and he read them out of his hat to the guy who wrote them down. And he claimed, you wouldn't understand it anyway, they're written in Reformed hieroglyphics, whatever that means. And later the plates were mysteriously lost. Who could have seen that coming? That is not transparency, beloved. Our God does not work that way. He doesn't work through private revelation. Nobody has ever had a dream or a vision that has more authority than this book. Funny story, I had a professor at Westminster who told us that his trick for keeping students on the edge of their seats is he said he liked to assign one textbook, but he taught from a different textbook. And that way he was always a step ahead of us and we didn't know what was coming, was his thinking. And we were always confused. He said this was a good way to look really intelligent and thoughtful on the subject. And I thought to myself, at least he was transparent about his lack of transparency. But the point is is that the word of God should not be like that. It contains mysteries, but it's not a secret book. It should be presented with complete transparency. By opening the book in plain sight, it makes clear that the words are not Ezra's, they're God's. Now, I want to point out something else here in verse 6. It says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra starts by blessing the Lord. And then the people respond. God hasn't done or said anything yet. But Ezra blesses him because he anticipates that God is going to do something. He's not only blessing God for his faithfulness throughout the rebuilding process, he is blessing him for what he is about to do in his word. Ezra anticipates an outpouring of the Spirit when he opens the word. Now, if that sounds familiar, it means you were awake last week, because I made the same argument for the people who were listening, because when I said they stand for the word, they're standing because they expect God to act. They expect something to happen. But it is just as true to say that the one teaching the word should have the same expectation. Why should I expect you all to be excited about the word if I'm not? If I don't expect God to move, what makes me think that you will expect him to? I need to remember that every week when I get into this pulpit because sometimes I forget and sometimes my expectations are low. Many weeks I enter this pulpit sort of skeptical that it's going to make a difference. But I'm wrong. And thankfully God works often in spite of my attitude. 
But you know, the same principle applies when you share the gospel with people in your life. When you open the word of God with someone, you should expect God to do something. Whether they expect anything or not, they may not believe any of this stuff. It might be completely new to them, but you should be excited and you should be expecting God to do something. You should know that God is at work in his word, even if you're nervous and don't have the best words and if you feel clumsy and stupid, maybe especially when you feel clumsy and stupid. This is not about your feelings. You will not always feel confident or excited about sharing the word. That's okay. Bless him anyway. Bless the Lord when you open his word and just see what happens. Act like you expect the spirit to show up. He usually does. Though it doesn't always look like what we expect it to look like, but he usually does. So when it comes to teaching the word, we've seen the importance of a few things. The sort of centrality of the word, the transparency of the word, teaching it with expectation and anticipation. But ultimately, to teach the word also means, again, to convey understanding. That's where we started back with Coolio a few minutes ago, right? In, in verses 2 and 3, you know, we saw that the, the people who are listening are men, women, and pe- those who have understanding. Uh, the word there in Hebrew means basically to have intelligence. Can you retain information? Like, in other words, are you old enough to understand language? But at the end of the passage here, we're talking about a different kind of understanding, we're talking more about actual comprehension of the word, an emotionally intelligent understanding, if you will. An understanding that actually leads to application. An understanding not just of the words and the syntax, but of God's mind on the matter. That's the project of the Levites in verses 7 and 8. I'll read those again. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan. Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I'll be honest with you, I can't tell you much about these particular Levites other than what we read here. I can only tell you that they have a critical job as Ezra's deputies, teachers, under-shepherds. They are the ones who take the words that Ezra is reading and preaching and they make it make sense. They convey understanding. Understanding is vital for the efficacy of the word. It's not enough to just read or have it read to you. You need to understand for it to be fruitful. And you can't always be your own interpreter. We all need help. You need community. You need the church. We observed last week that the word is a meal best enjoyed together. Understanding the word comes in the context of the larger body of Christ. We are not private interpreters. Think about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. The Ethiopian, he's sitting in a chariot. He's reading out loud from the book of Isaiah. And Philip asks him if he understands what he's reading. Well, when he asks that, he's not talking about whether he understands the Hebrew. Clearly, he understands enough Hebrew words well enough to read this thing out loud, right? But what, does he know what it means, really? That's different. Does he know the significance of it or what it means for him personally? And what does the Ethiopian respond? He says, how can I understand unless somebody guides me? We all need help and guidance. This is part of what the proverb means when it says not to lean on your own understanding. 
God has given us the church, he has given us each other to help each other and to equip the saints and perhaps the soon-to-be saints to understand. You'll notice there's several ways in verses 7 and 8 that sort of describe understanding. They're all different words in Hebrew, and each one can be translated a variety of ways, and I don't think that's a mistake. I think God wants us to understand his word on several levels, and that's what good teachers will help you do. Each of these words gives a sort of different spin on what understanding looks, looks like. So in verse 7, where it says they help the people to understand, the literal meaning is that they were acting as interpreters. In verse 8, it says that they read the law clearly, and that literally means actually to break it in pieces or to separate and distinguish and explain. Uh, it says that they gave the sense. The Hebrew word there means that they gave intelligence. They were giving the mind of the text, the gist. In the end, it says that the people understood, and the Hebrew word is bin, and the word has many shades of meaning, but it basically means they get it now. It means that they now can discern and explain and give understanding and interpret and investigate. They themselves could even teach this now. So you see now that this is way more than just reading words on a page. This is about bringing clarity to the word, giving the sense, making it understandable. There's a number of ways to do that, to read clearly and give the sense. I think one is to read with feeling, as if this is God's word and not the tax code. I don't want to brag. Uh, I think I'm a pretty good reader. Um, I'm a better reader than a preacher, actually. Uh, I read at home to the kids at night, and um, I, I do all the voices. I try to bring the text to life. I try to make it fun. I think the word of God should be read with similar oomph, if you like. Because reading with feeling is actually more clear than reading it flat for the same reason that a Shakespearean play makes more sense when you see it acted out. This is not a static text. It should be read clearly and therefore with feeling. The footnote there will tell you that clearly could also be translated as with interpretation, which actually reinforces the point. When you read with feeling, you're interpreting it. It can also mean breaking it down, making it easier to digest. The same footnote says you could also translate the word as paragraph by paragraph or piece by piece. That, that means they didn't jump around. They didn't only highlight the easy parts or skip the hard sayings. They took their time and covered it all in bite-sized chunks. Which is, by the way, the, the value of expository preaching and going through entire books at a time. The word should be preached straight without skipping around. Paragraph by paragraph doesn't allow me to preach whatever I feel like or to ride my hobby horses or skip the scandalous bits or to skip to the scandalous bits if you're like that. But when you go paragraph by paragraph, it means you get the whole counsel of God and that makes the word more clear. Young's Living Translation translates this word for clear as explaining, which is also super important. And I admit I can sometimes get lost in explaining the background of something, of a text, or the meaning of individual words, or geography, or whatever. There's a place for that. Explanation and commentaries and atlases and Wikipedia, like they all shed light, right? But you don't stop there. That's why he says this next thing, that, you, that they gave the sense, the, the meaning. 
because you can read a lot of things, you can even read them very clearly and with feeling if, you, if, you, you know, if you're good at that. You can diagram the sentence, you can look up every definition and never get to what it really means. I'll give you another example. I, I'm not a poet. Nor do I understand poetry or particularly like poetry. And yet every Christmas, uh, I buy Georgia a pile of those Choco Love bars. You ever seen those? I don't know. Maybe you're not into that. But it's the kind of nonsense you find at more pretentious grocery stores, <coughs> Whole Foods. Um, but they're pretty good chocolate, actually, overall. And, and the fun part is that inside of the wrapper, there's always a love poem. It's always different. And Georgia likes to make me read it out loud while I'm trying to watch Twilight Zone. And I'm a pretty educated guy. I know what a lot of words mean. Usually I understand all of the words individually, and I'm even really good at reading to the kids. And I know, using the power of deduction, that this Choco Love Bar poem is probably about love. And yet, I don't understand the meaning of the poems most of the time. The sense is lost on me. So I read it, and it doesn't sound right. I am an expert at story time for the kids. I am a failure at poetry because I don't know the sense, and it sounds tin-eared and confused. Until Georgia does understand poetry, kindly explains what this person is saying, and then I pretend the same like I already knew that, <laughs> and then I proceed to reread the poem with proper feeling, giving the sense. <laughs> Beloved, how much more important is it to understand the sense of God's word? This is, for instance, why we don't use the King James Version in this church. That's a faithful translation, and it's beautiful. But it's not our language. Not anymore. This is a church. This is not the Renaissance Fair. Even when I was shopping for Portuguese and Spanish Bibles, I wanted to err on the side of respected modern translations. I basically had to trust Ligonier to kind of direct me in that way. But the word should be read clearly, and it should give the sense... It should be made so simple that even a child can understand the gist. When I was in seminary, I learned lots of confusing words and concepts, but one night at home, I casually dropped a line about the perspicuity of Scripture. Georgia has never gotten over that because, you know, leave it to professional theologians to find a word for clarity that is completely unclear to everybody in the room. But the doctrine is sound. We believe that the word of God is clear enough for everyone. It can be explained. God does not want his word to be the exclusive province of the experts. God does not typically use experts. Uh, it's been a major theme of this whole book. Nehemiah, the bartender, building walls next to like farmers and perfumers and this kind of thing, right? Or, or think of the disciples, for goodness sake, right? Now, Ezra's an exception. Ezra is an expert. Ezra's an expert in the law, but he wants everyone to understand it, everyone to be a theologian. The simplest person should be able to understand the sense, to get the gist. 
That's Ezra's passion here, to see the word elevated, central, transparent, but also clear and understandable to the common man and woman in the pew. In connection to that, I want to point out just one last thing that struck me in verse 7. It's kind of a weird detail, but I actually think this is so vital to how this whole thing is supposed to work. We're told that as these guys were doing this work, we're told that the people remained in their places. I don't think that means that they sat perfectly still. I think what it means is that the teachers came down to their level. And that's the heart of what teaching is. Teaching requires a form of condescension. Now that sounds like a bad word. Condescending often implies being rude in our modern usage, but I mean it in its truest and purest form. Someone has to come down to my level if I'm going to learn anything. To understand poetry, Georgia has to explain it to me. To understand Isaiah, the Ethiopian needed Philip. The task of teaching God's word means bringing it down to the level of the one who's listening. Again, this is why we translate the Bibles into modern English. It's why I don't typically quote Van Til from the pulpit, right? You should not have to ascend the dais, in other words, to get the word. My job is to break the word down and make it digestible for you. And think about it, that this crowd in Jerusalem is a diverse group, just like you all are. You're all coming from different places. Everyone in this crowd has a story, unique challenges, unique fears, unique sins that they're dealing with this week. And they need God's word for daily living, just like you do. But that doesn't always happen from up in the front there. That happens in smaller settings. Someone has to come down to their level and make it make sense for their lives. And and I was thinking this week about what we talked about last Sunday with body language because we saw the people reacting to the word of God, right? They They stood for the word of God. They anticipated things. But one of the things they do is they raise their hands And at the time, I described it as a form of surrender, which it is. You watch any cop show. I mean, that's what cops tell the guys to do, right? You know, hands where I can see them, right? The robbers do it too, you know? You know, stick them up kind of thing, right? Like, okay, I get it. But you know what else raising your hands looks like? It looks like a child coming to their dad and asking him to pick them up. Why do they do that? Because they want dad to reach down and lift them up so that they can be closer to him. And that's not entirely unlike what we're doing here on Sunday mornings, is that we want God to reach down to condescend so that he can lift us up. And that's what Jesus did. That's what the incarnation was all about. When we say the word became flesh, he came down because we couldn't go up. And that's how the written word works, too. It comes down to where we are. God's word has so many lofty truths, but someone needs to condescend and make it understandable. The spirit is the one who actually makes it make sense in our hearts, right? But when you bring the word down to someone's level, what I'm telling you is that you are imitating your Savior. No one ever had to condescend more than Jesus did. He not only became man, but he also taught on our level. 
He didn't speak highbrow gibberish or use words like perspicuity. He talked about farming and fishing and keeping house. Things people could understand. And so you are imitating your Savior when you break down the word and bring it down to those who are willing to receive it. You can do this in small groups. You can do it in one-on-one discipleship over coffee. You can do it over lunch during your work break. You can do it over beer at fire night if you like. The point is not to impress people with your wisdom, but to help them understand. So you who follow Jesus are all called to be teachers at one time or another. So keep the word central. Keep it transparent. Expect God to do something. Make it clear. Give the sense and bring it down to their level. And you will be teaching them to raise their hands to their heavenly father. And he will lift them up because he loves to pick up his kids. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, how can we possibly thank you enough for your word? You didn't have to give us this. You didn't have to condescend to give us your word in a written form, translated into common tongues so that we can all approach it and read it for ourselves. You didn't have to speak to us at all. And yet you not only spoke to us over the course of many centuries, Lord, ultimately you sent your son, the word made flesh, to dwell among us and be one of us. We thank you, Lord, because we couldn't get to you otherwise. We were helpless and out of reach. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to handle your word, Lord, with care, but to also be diligent in breaking it down so that those who we are responsible to teach can understand it. Prepare us, Lord, to give the sense and to make it clear and to be transparent, Lord. And I pray that you would teach us to expect something to happen when we open your word with people who need to hear it, perhaps for the first time. Teach us to expect you to act. Lord, we pray that for this week and every week. In Christ's name, amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God.